Welcome to our podcast for college Catholics, where we discuss faith and spirituality from a Catholic perspective. I'm Father Patrick, and I'm a priest of Midas Christi Religious Order. Midas Christi is a Catholic religious order with two houses in Argentina, Mexico, Italy, Vernia, Rome, and three houses in the U.S. Our first house in the United States was established in the Archdiocese of Detroit in Michigan in October 2000. It was actually two priests of our religious order who arrived driving from Pennsylvania on October 1st, 2000. Providentially, it was the feast of St. Therese of Lisieux, so that day we went first to the National Shrine of the Little Flower to pray and entrust the news foundation to God through the intercession of St. Therese. What we didn't know is that also in Detroit there was another important spiritual site, the Salanus Casey Center. In fact, Salanus Casey hadn't been beatified yet at that time. He was beatified on November 18th, 2017. But it had already been transferred from Detroit to San Diego, to our house in San Diego, in 2010, so I wasn't able to participate in his beatification. However, as I was transferred back to Detroit in 2019, I tried to go with our religious of our order to visit the relics whenever possible and entrust our whole religious order to which I owe my priesthood and the many things I learned as a religious and, and as a priest, to entrust them to him, all our priests and our brothers, and increase the vocations to meet as Christi. So I have a devotion to Father Salonis Casey primarily because he's a blessed and his body is here in Detroit, which is incredible. You don't usually get to have saints uh, buried in the same town where you live, unless you live in Italy or in some other uh, place in Europe. So not only is he buried in Detroit, but he lived most of his life in Detroit. But I also think I have a devotion to him because he was a priest, and he had to suffer much as a priest, because he was not considered qualified enough to deliver sermons or hear confessions, and still he was a saint. He was what they used to call a simplex priest. So I'd, I'd like to give you a brief biography in this episode, highlighting some of the events in his life, so that maybe you might have a devotion to him as well, and imitate him and ask him to intercede for you. So let us start with his parents, who were Bernard Casey and Ellen Murphy, who had emigrated from Ireland to Boston, and after living in different places on the east coast of the U.S., they moved to a farm near Prescott, Wisconsin, and there they built a log house and a farm. They were Irish Catholics of a deep and simple faith, Father Salanus wrote later when he was older about this time in Prescott. We were fortunate children that the good God gave us such sturdy, honest, virtuous parents. How can we ever be grateful enough? Thanks be to God. May their dear souls rest in the peace of the Beloved. The parents taught the Christian prayers, the devotion to the Virgin Mary and the basics of their faith to their children. Bernard and Ellen had 16 children, and one of them, the sixth child, was called Bernard Francis. He was born on November 25, 1870, and baptized within a month. Three of their children would become priests. Bernard Francis was given the nickname Barney. But because they didn't have any means, they couldn't afford the transportation necessary to take their children together to Mass on Sundays, and they had to travel six miles with one horse and a wagon. So the children had to take turns to go, 
one Sunday, half of the children with one parent would go to Mass. And then the following Sunday, the other half with the other parent. So those who stayed would gather to do the readings and the prayers of the Mass. Through this, through all this, his devotion to the Mass and to the Virgin Mary grew more and more. Now, there were many trials and difficulties during this time in Wisconsin. In 1878, there was black, black diphtheria, and some of the children died. Also, Barney got sick with diphtheria, which damaged his vocal cords, and from then on, his voice was affected, and he couldn't speak very loudly. He had a weak and raspy voice from that time on, which made it difficult for people to hear him clearly, and apparently this, condi this condition damaged his voice for the rest of his life. On certain occasions, when there were serious financial hardships, Barney decided to add to the other family prayers the recitation of the rosary at night before going to bed. He prayed it on his knees, offering his prayers for the well-being of his family. Now, because he wanted to help his family with his work also, Barney left his house to Stillwater, Minnesota, to look for a job around the age of 17. He worked in the log mills, a brick kiln. After, uh, he worked as a prison guard, a streetcar operator, and several other things with which he helped to help uh, his family back home with the funds that he uh, obtained. Now, on one occasion while he was working in the brick kiln, a man chanced to fall in a deep pit filled with water, and he was about to drown as he didn't know how to swim and was panicking. Barney, who was always concerned for the well-being of those around him, decided to jump into the water to save him. But the panicked man would not allow him to drag him out and was fighting him, and actually was causing Barney to sink as well. So Barney clasped his scapular, which he had around his neck, and prayed to the Virgin Mary and he felt that he was dragged up from under the water. Unfortunately, the other man wasn't saved, but Barney owed his life to the scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Now, around that time, Barney started dating a young woman, Rebecca Tobin, and soon after he proposed marriage to her. Unfortunately, uh, Rebecca's mother completely opposed the idea and sent Rebecca to a boarding school far away, so that Barney couldn't see her in, anymore. This, of course, was a great heartbreak for Barney, and he had to move on in his life in spite of not being able to marry the woman he loved. Now, in God's providential plan, what seemed to be a devastating reality would enable him later to become a priest and serve thousands of people in their path to heaven. Now, looking for a better work, he ended up going to the town of Superior, Wisconsin, near Duluth, to be a streetcar operator there. One of his brothers had entered the seminary, but then left. And Barney started considering the possibility of being called to the priesthood as well. During this time in Superior, there was an important event in his life that marked him deeply and that impacted his future. On one occasion, during the fall of 1981, he was only 21 years old then, as he was driving his trolley car, he saw that a street ahead of him was crowded with people in such a way that he couldn't continue driving along the street. He got down from the streetcar, and in the middle of the crowd, he saw a young woman lying on the, trail, on the rail tracks, and she was drenched in her own blood. And she was now dead. 
and next to her there was a drunk man, a sailor, holding a knife, also drenched in blood, and still cursing the woman. Barney was devastated and appalled. He saw firsthand the hurt present in humanity, the deep hatred and the pain, things he had not witnessed in his family, but he could, that he could see in the world now, in a section of society that lived without God. And he wanted to do something to help. He wanted to help heal the wounds caused by sin in the world and in society. So the idea of becoming a priest became stronger, and he saw in that path a great way to help humanity. So two days later, he went to speak with his local pastor of his new desire. As the idea of the priesthood became stronger, he decided to enter the diocesan seminary in Milwaukee. The main languages for studies at the seminary were German and Latin. And he had a hard time with both. So uh, Barney had a hard time learning uh, Latin and German, so his grades were not good. So eventually the superiors recommended that he should leave the seminary. But they also recommended that perhaps he could join a religious order. And this is why he visited the Franciscan Capuchins in Milwaukee. But there were two things why he felt he would not be a good fit. There, too, the priests spoke German, where he couldn't speak well, and the Capuchins were required to have a long beard, which he seriously disliked. So again, he went back home and continued trying to figure out what was the will of God, with the guidance of a priest that he knew. He started communications with the different Franciscan monasteries, including the Capuchins in Detroit, but still he wasn't sure, and he really didn't feel happy about going to the Capuchins. In fact, in a letter to his uh, brother, Maurice, he shared that entering the Capuchins was one of the farthest things from his desires that he could imagine. He prayed to God so that he could know what to do next. He decided to do a novena to Our Lady as the Feast of the Immaculate Conception was approaching, and in fact on December 8, 1896, he felt sure that he wanted to live in celibacy. So he did an interior vow to live in chastity for the rest of his life. And as he did his vow, he became strongly aware of the presence of Our Lady, and he heard interiorly the words, Go to Detroit. And he knew that the Capuchins had their novitiate there in Detroit. So he took this to mean that he should join the Capuchins in Detroit, Michigan. So that same December, 1896, being 27 years old, with his few belongings, he took a train and arrived in Detroit on Christmas Eve and went to the Capuchin novitiate there. The living quarters were very simple and stark, too rough for his liking. And as he found himself in his room, alone in the dark afternoon, he felt a certain desolation of spirit and wondered if he had done the right choice. All the former negative feelings and prejudices against the Capuchins seemed to envelop him again. So he lay in his bed and fell asleep, only to be woken up to participate in the Capuchins' midnight Christmas Mass. And with that, the desolation left him for some time. As he started his novitiate in January 1897, he was given the name Francis Solanus, after the great Franciscan saint. But as there was already another brother called Francis, he was usually known as Brother Solanus, and later Father Solanus. During his novitiate, his grades were not the best. 
and his superiors wondered if he could continue his formation to the priesthood. Because of this, in order to continue his studies, he was asked to sign a document stating his intention in entering the Capuchins. That is, that he entered with the intention of becoming first and foremost a religious Capuchin, and that if considering his lack of talents, his superiors thought him not fit for the priesthood, then he would embrace their decision with humble submission. The text he wrote reads as follows. I, Salanus Casey, declare that I joined the Order of the Capuchins in the province of St. Joseph with a sure intention to follow thus my religious vocation. Although I would wish and should be thankful to be admitted to the ordination of a priest, considering my lack of talents, I leave it to my superiors to judge on my faculties and to dispose of me as they think best. I therefore will lay no claim whatsoever if they should think me not worthy or not able for the priesthood, and I always will humbly submit to their appointments. So he later started to study theology. And again, at the end of his studies, and before taking solemn vows, his grades were not the best. So again, he was required to state his willingness to be a religious capuchin, even if he wasn't ordained a priest, leaving that decision to his superiors and submitting humbly to that. This was intended as a way of uh, purifying his intention to perfect his spirit of obedience and his willingness to dedicate his entire life to God as a religious, regardless of the circumstances and conditions of his life. So now, this may sound too harsh for today's ears, but it definitely made him grow in humility and in a spirit of complete surrender into the hands of the merciful providence of God. He knew perfectly well that he wasn't worthy of the priesthood, and therefore the holy orders would always be an infinite gift of God, which he didn't deserve at all. He was willing to obey his superior's judgment in this regard, seeing in them the will of the good and provident God. So, in fact, he would eventually be ordained a priest in 1904, but he was given restricted faculties. He could celebrate Mass, and he could give short spiritual thoughts, what some people call fervorinos, but he could not administer the sacrament of confession or reconciliation, nor deliver longer sermons. In fact, he was usually given smaller responsibilities, like being a sacristan, taking care of the soup kitchen, and being a porter in the monastery. He could celebrate Mass, however, and this gave him a great consolation. He was a simplex priest, as they call him in that time. So after his ordination, he was sent to the friary in Yonkers, New York. Because of his limited faculties, again, he was made a sacristan. He was in charge of training altar boys, and he was a porter or doorkeeper, and took care of receiving many people who could uh, come asking for help and guidance. Father Salonis was known to be very good at listening. He cared deeply for, the, for those who came, and, uh, who came to him suffering, and his heart went out to all those who suffered. This was the hallmark as his, of his future ministry wherever he went. He spoke to whomever came to him, Catholic or non-Catholic. He prayed with and for those who came to him. He lifted up their intentions in prayer. He encouraged them to trust God and to embrace the most holy will of God, whatever result came their way. To, this, to those who uh, came to him for prayers, 
he would also suggest something that they could do for others, like a work of mercy, that, and that would also bring them closer to God. Because of his humble demeanor and his kindness in listening, he became more and more popular, especially in difficult times, like the times of the First World War, the Great Depression, and World War II. He would encourage people to be enrolled in the Seraphic Mass Association. This is an association of the Capuchins, which means that the uh, Capuchin priests would offer masses for all those who were listed in the association. And many times, uh, Father Solanus would take their name and prayer and their prayer intentions, and the priests would pray for their intentions. With time, some of the people who came for, to Father Solanus with intentions and who uh, prayed and were uh, enrolled in the Ceramic Mass Association began to be cured and their request granted. So uh, Father Solanus had to take a log of all the people and all the intentions they requested and what was the result of those prayers. Now, while he, Father Solanus, was very spiritual, he was also very down-to-earth and very approachable. He would sweep the sidewalk, give coffee to the visitors, and even play baseball with the schoolboys. After some years, he was transferred from Yonkers to Manhattan, where he worked for six years. And after that, he was transferred to Detroit. Many people be began to come to St. Bonaventure Monastery in Detroit to speak with Father Solanus. He couldn't give sacramental absolution, but many people would still share their lives with him and even tell him his sins. So then Father Solanus uh, had an arrangement with Father Herman Bus. What happened is that uh, Father Solanus would uh, listen to their sins and their conversation and then send them to Father Herman and tell them to give a brief summary of their sins and Father Herman would give them absolution for their sins. Many people came asking for prayers or a blessing because of a serious illness, either in themselves or in their families. And many people received miracles through the prayers of Blessed Solanus Casey. He spent much time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, in the chapel that is still available today at St. Bonaventure Monastery. And there he said also his, uh, his Masses. Actually, I had the grace to celebrate Mass in the very same altar where Father Solanus used to celebrate his Mass so devoutly and reverently. To Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and to the Virgin Mary through the Rosary, Father Solanus would elevate the people that came to him, the people and their intentions. There are so many cures and miracles done through Father Solanus that a book could be written only with the cures and miracles. So I will give you just two examples. The first one is of Arthur Rutledge. He was a volunteer at St. Bonaventure's whom Father Solanus knew well. Arthur was di diagnosed with a tumor in the abdominal area and was taken to the hospital. Father Solanus went to the hospital and ran into Arthur in the hall as he was being wheeled into the operating room. Father Solanus stopped them and asked what was going on. Arthur said that he was, uh, they were going to operate on him because of a tumor. And Father Solanus asked, where is the tumor? Arthur indicated the abdominal area. So Father Solanus placed his hand in the area, and after a short while he said uh, to him, Have them give you another examination before they operate. So indeed, when the doctors examined him, they found no tumor at all. So he was discharged the next day and went back to working, and he had never had an, 
reoccurrence of that tumor again. Another example is what happened in the soup kitchen. For many years at St. Bonaventure's, there was a soup kitchen, uh, which Father Sananos went every now and then to help with uh, his presence and also with serving the poor. During the time of the Depression, many people came to ask for food. Now, on one occasion, there were some 300 men in line for bread, but the bread had run out. So they asked Father Solanus for help. Father Solanus went to the men who were in line and told them, just wait and God will provide. And then he invited them to pray, and they all prayed together and our Father. After that, someone opened the front door to go out, and there was a baker there with a truck full of food, which he had come to deliver to the soup kitchen. When they saw this, many men started to cry, and Solanus reminded them to always trust in the divine providence. On many situations, people would come to him for favors, but the favors were not always granted. Sometimes he had to encourage people to embrace their pain, their suffering, or their loss, but always with a firm trust in the protection and providence of God. This is why he would encourage people, and this is a main aspect of his uh, ministry and his uh, spirituality. He would encourage people to ask God, but also to thank God ahead of time, meaning that they should thank our Lord for whatever result came from their prayers, knowing that whatever happened, be it according or not to their prayers, whatever happened had been determined by the loving and caring will of God the Father. He himself had to suffer excruciating pain in his whole body toward the last years of his life. He would have eruptions in the skin all over his body, part of which was diagnosed as skin cancer. Because of this, he was transferred to different houses of the order in Brooklyn, New York, and in Huntington, Indiana, so that he could have some rest and recover. The end of his life, however, spent it in Detroit, and the skin disease was worse than ever. During the last year of his life, someone asked him where it hurt, and he answered, my whole body hurts. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And he added, I am offering my sufferings that all may be one. Oh, if I could only live to see the conversion of the whole world. As he was approaching his last days, Father Solanus said to one of the priests that was with him, I looked on my whole life as giving, and I want to give until there is nothing left to be given. So I prayed that when I come to die, I might be perfectly conscious, so that with a deliberate act, I can give my last breath to God. He died in the hospital. As a nurse was helping him, Solanus opened wide his eyes, stretched out his arms, and said with a clear voice, I give my soul to Jesus Christ and fell back, offering God his last breath. It was 11 a.m. on July 31st, 1957. He had given his life to God as a sacrifice. The viewing and funeral lasted several days. The first day there were some 5,000 people who came. The second day, 10,000 people. He was buried in the cemetery next to the friary. Today, you can visit his relics in the Salanus Casey Center in Detroit, 
And if you're lucky, you can also get a third-class relic when you go through the reception desk. So, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Just for you to know, I will have to take a break these coming two weeks, as I have my week-long spiritual exercise of retreat with my community, which I also encourage you to do, a retreat every year, uh, spiritual exercises with me as Christy. And then I will have a time of vacation with my religious community as well. So if you like this episode, please share it with others. And also, if you can, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I hope to see you next time. May God bless your day. <laughs>